What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're up to, including all of our other podcasts, over at blisterreview.com. Now, our guest this week is Tim Smith, who is the Chief Technology Officer and the Head of Materials Development at Vormi, which Tim describes as a textile technology company that makes outdoor apparel. Now, if that doesn't exactly sound like the typical description of a company that makes apparel for skiing and mountain biking and fishing and the gamut of outdoor pursuits, you'd be right. And I would suggest that you listen closely to what else Tim has to say in this conversation, because Vormi definitely isn't trying to be just another outdoors apparel company. They develop their own textiles in-house, they manufacture their products in the United States, and they've got a bunch of big plans. So if you care about gear and you like geeking out about the details, which of course is probably why you're listening to this podcast in the first place, well, then I think that you are going to really want to learn more about the Vormi story and what the brand is up to. Tim came out to Crested Butte this week to sit down with me in Blister HQ for this conversation, and at some point tomorrow, that would be Saturday, August 15th, you will be able to head over to our Blister YouTube channel to watch a video of my conversation with Tim and take a look at several of the Vormi products that Tim and I are going to be discussing today. And so with that, let's now go ahead and get to my conversation with Tim Smith. Here we go. Well, Tim Smith, welcome to Blister Headquarters. Thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate the invite. So our work here today is to learn more about the origin story of Vormi and kind of run it all the way up to today, what you guys, why you started and what you're working on now. When did the company start? Why did the company start? Sure thing. Yeah. So if you... um if you look at the outdoor industry on whole, there, there are some amazing stories about people who lived a lifestyle that a lot of people wish they could, that had a problem that invented something and started a company, right? I mean, I think there are so many stories, you know, starting from the, from the inception of the industry itself. You know, our, our story's different, quite frankly, and, um, and, and we're really proud of that. And so if you rewind to, to the founding of the company, the company was founded in 2010, you know, at the time, you know, the outdoor industry was, um, had gone through an interesting transformation, if you will. You know, the financial crisis that had hit 2008, you know, had basically left, um, had left the industry, for lack of a better term, consolidated. You know, there were a small handful of brands. They were buying from a small handful of factories, buying from even smaller handful of textile mills. And ultimately, um, from our perspective, you know, if you had walked outdoor retailer in 2010, it was it was a sea of sameness, right? And and from our perspective, what that left what that left empty was not only a lack of innovation for for the people who it really mattered for. I mean, sure, if if your goal was to fill a retail shop with a whole bunch of product and have you know a whole lot of specialty gear that only worked if you had a lot of it, you know, it was it was a booming time for the industry. But what we felt had been left behind was was really um, the folks who who relied on their gear, who woke up every single day, who lived in it, who worked in it, you know, and then for folks who were looking for the kind of innovation that that we had seen in other parts of our lives. I mean, I I reflect, you know, how long ago was it when when we never th- even had a conception that we'd hail a car with our iPhone, right? This this rate of change that had been driven through through the tech industry. I mean, we wanted to see that in the outdoor industry. That was that was our vision. It was really to to try and drive transformational change. You know, go further back in the supply chain, innovate deeper. You know, truly do things that were different, and pair that and couple that with an authenticity that that would speak to the folks who actually woke up every day and and relied on their gear. It's interesting when you talk about a lack of innovation in kind of the, I guess, apparel industry. I mean, I think about, I immediately go to like membranes where I feel like we have heard about and seen, maybe it's sometimes pretty subtle iterations or whatever, kind of more on the membrane front. So, I'm just trying to think of another like 
apparel company that might be like, what are you talking about? Like we're innovating, we've been innovating on materials. So how would you address that? Like when you're talking about a lack of material innovation and I respond like, well, what about membranes? Sure, sure. Well, and I think this is an important distinction. Um, and, and I'm glad you brought it up between maybe what, what we mean by the word innovation and what we mean by invention, right? And, and if, you, if you rewind back to the invention of membranes. I mean, that's a 1978 invention, right? And and after 1978, after this new method of make was created, the next 30, 40, 50 years, that's then incrementally innovating off of that basic platform. And from our perspective, what was lacking in the industry was not an innovative spirit. It wasn't the desire to, to take one more step forward. It was that appetite, that passion to really take that giant leap forward, to invent the next method of making in the industry, the next class of materials that, that after doing that drives 40 more years of, of true innovation beyond that. So before we get too deep into this conversation, we should probably back up for a second and talk about your role at Vormi. What do you do there? Do you do the same thing now that you kind of came on to the squad for? And you were there from the beginning or early days? Yeah, yeah, sure was. Yeah, we, um, so my role at, at Vormi, I, I essentially am responsible for and wake up every day thinking about, you know, textile technology, right? So, you know, I would look at materials, I'd look at new ways of making textiles and fabrics, and then looking at then how those materials translate into garments. You know, it's, has my role evolved? Absolutely. I think it always does. You know, as you, as you start with a small team at a company, you know, you wear so many hats and, and to this day, we still all wear a whole lot of hats, you know, but as we now transition into this next phase, as we start to take some of the things we've been foundationally doing for the last you know, seven, eight years and taking the next level, you know, you know, my job will continually shift towards waking up every day and, and trying to make our materials do things they've never done before. You're kind of the head material guy, product guy. Would that be the same? We're thinking of those things interchangeably. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I would say if, if you're in a traditional clothing company, the way materials are developed, um, you start with some sketch of a product, you know, ultimately, I want to make a jacket that looks like this. And then from there, you back brief all the materials, right? That's, that's how 99% of apparel companies run. We do it a little differently. We start by building a new textile or new material. And then once we have that new material built, then also through our investment that we've made in our own cut and sew facilities, you know, it's our job to go figure out what to go make out of that fabric. And that, that honestly is, is truly a team effort. There's, there's everybody in the company in some way is involved in something that they're passionate about and love to do. And so, you know, it really is, you know, once we have that material, bringing that material to life in products, that's, that's the job of everybody in the company, quite frankly. So it is, let's figure out cool new materials first, then we decide what would be the most interesting applications of those materials. Yeah, it's kind of like, what do they want to be? You know, and it's, and it's hard to know that, you know, when you're kind of in some unchartered space, for sure. And where are you making your products? Yeah, so we, uh, we made a decision as a company early on um, to do everything in the United States. So at the time, it was, a, it was a hard thing to do, and it took a whole lot of hard work to push that rock up a hill. But, but we made that decision for two, for really for two reasons. One was agility, and the second was self-reliance, right? And so, you know, traditional product cycles, somebody comes into the room, briefs, gosh, what are we, that would be about 2023 right now. And then the process would start, you know, the designers would design, the material developers would go take their quarterly trips overseas and go look through fabric showrooms. We wanted to, to set up a, a much more agile supply chain. We wanted to be able to try new things, do new things, beta tests, you know, make small batches of things before we made big batches of things. And the way to do that for us was to do it in the US. It ultimately also drove, you know, something that we're also really passionate about, which is this idea of self-reliance. You know, I just took this road trip, you know, up to, um, up to our Bozeman office. Here I am, I could have woken up that day, 
I could have turned on this magical piece of technology in my pocket. I never would have had to look at where Bozeman was relative to our office in Pagosa Springs. And it would have given me turn-by-turn directions, probably told me where to stop for dinner, and found a hotel along the way. Yet at the same time, there was value in, in pulling the map out a week before the trip really figuring out what was around the area, you know, where do these things sit relative to each other? What could we do along the way, right? And, and if, uh, if the satellites fell out of the sky, you know what, we're still going to get there, so to speak. And I feel like in, um, in the apparel industry, it's, it's very much been, you know, set up with these intricate, complex global supply chains that, you know, if one piece of the puzzle doesn't come together, the whole thing falls apart. And, and I think, you know, we've all experienced in the last six months, um, you know, the network went down. Man. It, it's been a weird time for everybody. And, and to be able to walk into our team and say, guess what? This is a situation. We need to double down. We're going to make more. Or we're going to repurpose Pagosa Springs, and we're going to make a whole new breed of gator that can act as a face mask so that, you know, in our small town, you know, we have more options. You know, that's, that's the kind of agility you get out of making the early upfront investment in doing things yourself and doing it more locally. And, and ultimately, you know, when times get tough, you know, that's when you look back and, and the hard work was worth it. So let's talk about materials. You guys came in with some pretty specific things in mind. So talk about that. And then I'm also interested in, you have a patent, mm. a materials patent, which is kind of surprising and impressive to me. So talk to me about both of the, those things and what you're working with. Yeah, sure thing. So. When we started the company back in 2010, um, you know, we, as I mentioned, had a had kind of a charter to find new ways to make things. You know, our, our theory was, you know, if we just went and bought fabric off a header card out of a, some textile mill somewhere in the world, that, you know, it was going to look like everybody else's stuff. And we won't really have really pushed the ball forward. You know, so, so ultimately, we made the decision to, um, to go invest at the textile development level. Our idea at the time, you know, was that essentially merino wool had had really been experiencing a resurgence. You know, it was not your grandfather's wool anymore. It was now seen as a performance fiber. But yet at the same time, it was pretty relegated to socks and underwear. It was it was too weak, too water absorbing to be used in outerwear applications. And so it was a part of the story, but not the whole story. When we focused on developing new processes, new methods to make, what we chose to do was to go take natural fibers like merino wool, like other natural fibers, and, and basically put them into 21st century manufacturing processes and pair them with adva- other advanced materials. Uh, this process we ended up calling a precision blending process, the idea that you take a pure merino wool fiber, you take a pure high-performance wicking fiber or a fiber design for abrasion resistance, and in the knitting machine, you know, you basically float these things, you know, to the surface if you want them on the surface, next to the skin if you want them next to skin. And we we ended up creating these extremely kind of complex merino wool-based structures. That was the foundation of the company. It was really all about um, kind of trying to stick things in machines that were meant, never meant to have them. It led to the, the patent you asked about, which is our core construction technology. Uh, we... You know, imagine if you will, we've, we've now got a couple years of experience under our belt. I'm going to take this merino wool fiber, I'm going to stick it into the machine, I'm going to put it in the middle, I'm going to put a wicking fiber and float it next to skin. Well, that all works until you find yourself in some sort of inclement weather. And so now we needed to start talking membranes, we needed to start talking weather protection. And the idea was hatched, why don't we just stick a membrane into the knitting machine? Why has it been done so many times over the years where you have to make a textile, you have to make another textile, you have to make a membrane, you have to glue them all together. You have these laminated constructions that are loud, they're crunchy, they're stiff. They're the last thing we all want to pull out of the closet. So why not think about it differently? Why not stick that membrane right into the machine, create the knit around it, you eliminate the need for glue, the membrane's basically protected in the middle, and then we have some patented processes and after that, where we can reseal some of those holes that you create, right? You can reestablish the integrity of the membrane, you can, you know, kind of, if you will, uh, do things to it to, to kind of finish it. That's where our patents lie, um, this brand new process. In its initial launch, we, uh, we basically said, well, if you don't have glue, it's not stiff, it's not crunchy, 
why couldn't we make something that you know had the comfort of a sweater, the protection of a shell? And that that ultimately spawned the, the first products out of the gate. Um, but what it also did is it got a lot of folks thinking, well, what else could you put in the middle? So, so in a way, if you kind of rewind 1978 or whenever the idea of gluing things together was invented, here we are, we're kind of standing on that horizon again. We've got a new way to put things together. What should we do, right? And so you have folks going, well, why not take carbon fiber and put it together with something that's not a membrane, right? What does that do? Well, now we're opening up to other industries. It's not just apparel. There's, you know, medical applications. There's all sorts of now in this new world we live in personal protective applications. And so, you know, really, um, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, standing on this horizon, not necessarily knowing what's out in front of you, but but knowing you probably have 30 or 40 years to go to go innovate on top of it. Maybe I misspoke a minute ago. Did I say you have a materials patent? Yep. It's would you, this isn't a materials patent. It's a process patent. And both. Yeah. It's both. Yeah. 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 So in the world of patents, you have the way you do things and you have the things that you did. Right. And we have, we kind of covered the landscape on, on all those as well. And, and we continue uh, each day to file new ideas on top of the, on top of the base patent as well. Just to try to clarify with this, I mean, if you're you're doing this blend, right? And it's kind of interesting because it seems like a lot of the marketing we see out there from other companies and the rest is like 100% Merino, right? 100% Merino. And it's like, well, these guys over here are talking about blending and bringing in other fabrics and the rest. Why bother with Merino at all? Sure, sure. Yeah, so... Um to, to answer your question, your first question, which is kind of about why blend, I think it's really important. You know, concrete without rebar doesn't really do you much good, right? And so if you had a pure concrete patio, it'd fall apart in two years. Similarly, you know, merino wool has some limitations, right? So it's a naturally weak fiber. If you try and get merino wool too thin, too fine, there's not much of it in the world. And typically things you make out of it in a pure sense don't last that long. Not good from a performance standpoint, not good from a sustainability standpoint. So this idea of, of bringing Merino to, together with other things, that's, that's really where that comes from. As to why Merino, you know, quite honestly, it's, it's got a structure that is yet to be replicated by man. It's, if you were to take a Merino wool fiber, take the hair right off the sheep, if you were to cut that and then look inside of it in the cross section, what you would see is in the center of the fiber, there's essentially a material that loves water. It wants to absorb 30% of its weight in water. I mean, it just wants to soak that water up, right? Which, which like cotton, you know, would, um, would be terrible if you didn't have the other part of the fiber, which is the shell. So on the shell, that shell hates water. And what happens when you sweat into merino wool is essentially your sweat comes off your skin as vapor. It crosses that first layer, that shell that hates water, just kind of lets it go through, absorbs in on the inside of the fiber. That water then is protected, right? It's not touching your skin. It's not filling the air pockets in between the fibers and then destroying all your thermal insulation. It's why wool is warm when it's wet. And then it re-evaporates again. And when it re-evaporates again, it kind of takes that heat with it and it ultimately ends up regulating temperature really well. So, so wool is, is always because of its, you know, hyper evolved, if you will, fiber, uh, shape and, and material structure, it's constantly working to pull moisture, uh, absorb it where you want it, not where you don't re evaporate that moisture, take the heat with it. It's why if you wear a Merino wool sweater, you can go indoors, come, come indoors, go outdoors, and you never really feel that plasticky, hot, sweaty feeling. That's, that's the magic of Merino wool. It also doesn't tend to hold odor, right? Which is especially powerful when you're in the backcountry or you have something that needs to last a long time. In our current um, neck gaiters, which, which have been a kind of a runaway success for us, it means I can wear that neck gaiter three or four days, you know, use it as a mask and, and then toss it in the washer and not have to constantly be using disposable things or washing all the time. And so it's got a lot of properties we like all the thermal regulating properties, all the moisture regulating properties. It's got some things that, you know, are its Achilles heel. And we just use, you know, an engineered approach to try and essentially uh, reinforce those or work around them much, much like rebar and concrete does. I asked you, you know, coming in, I just said, you're the product and materials guy. So 
bring in some of your favorites and uh, tell us about what's going on and why you think they're particularly interesting. So what do you got? Yeah, so I, I brought a couple different things. You know, from our perspective, again, as you as you think about merino wool kind of previously being relegated to socks and underwear, now truly um, you know, capable as a performance fabric, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can take it, right? And um, and what's ironic is if you look at how we started as a company, our first product, this was the high E hoodie. This was our the first product we ever made. So R&D 2010 to 2013, launched this product 2013. Um, you know, this has become a workhorse for us. We started the company as a as a winter backcountry brand. That that was that was at the heart of everything we did. Um, this is um, from a precision blending perspective. It's merino wool. Um, on the inside, when we are running that machine, we insert a fiber that's designed to wick moisture. That fiber floats to the inside surface. So if you open up our high e hoodie and you look on the inside, touching your skin is a high performance wicking fiber. We nap that and fleece it for some thermal performance. You can get it in various weights. Um, on the outside of the product, we, we uh, float in an abrasion-resistant nylon fiber. We push it and interlace it on the outside of the fabric. And what that does is it creates a super highly abrasion-resistant surface on the outside. And then we treat that whole thing with a water-repellent treatment that works across all those different fibers, which is pretty hard to do. Um, and what you get in the end of the day is, is a non-laminated, non-glued you know, construction that on the inside delivers you thermal moisture wicking performance. On the outside is hardened for abrasion, for backpack straps, beacon harnesses, all the other stuff we're going to throw at it. And kind of at the core of it all, in the middle of it all, is this merino wool, which is just pushing moisture from a, from a thermal perspective and just regulating. The high E um, has a balaclava style hood. So this is a, you know, protect away and shove yourself away from the elements. Again, winter backcountry travel inspired. It's got a pass-through kangaroo pocket for tucking away. It's got integrated thumb loops. So from a, from a feature and performance perspective, you know, it's got kind of all the things you need and none of the things that you don't. From this product, we do lighter weight versions without hoods, our access pullover, which we've just launched a brand new version of for 2020 for aerobic applications. And then we have warmer full zip ones. We've just launched a 2020 drift jacket, which is more kind of be your thicker, warmer, more insulative layer. So then, you know, engineering in all the different thermal levels. Um, so, so that's the high E hoodie. That was kind of how the company started. Early in the conversation, you were talking about, you know, we were looking at the market and we wanted to see if we could make something that wasn't that kind of crunchy, hard, highly weather protective piece, but didn't have a very soft hand feel, was kind of crinkly, whatever. So that piece, how much weather protection are we getting out of that? Yeah, this is kind of like your 80% of days, if you will, you know, piece. It's, um, you know, if you think about the genre of soft shell, you know, it's, it's almost in a way delivering that kind of fleece-like comfort, soft shell-like protection, you know, for the 80, 80 to 90% scenario. But we're not, you're not going ski touring in that in a driving snowstorm or like a, God forbid you're ski touring in the rain, you know, happens sometimes, <laughs> but that's not what that piece is designed for. Yeah. It's really, you know, it's designed, um, for what I would call kind of snow, heavy snow. But if, if you're driving rain, if you're kind of in that transitional BC climate, you know, you know, it is really designed to be that, that kind of workhorse of a mid layer that delivers that extra level of protection throw on the shell if things get terribly, terribly bad, right? But again, if, if you know, you think about it, it's probably covering 85% of the days you're going to have touring, quite frankly. And, and I, I, this is probably my primary touring piece for variable weather. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Even if you're pretty sure you're going to be getting snowed on at some point yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the other thing about wool, wool's got a really interesting dynamic with DWR. It just, it just, uh, you know, typical DWR, uh, tends to fail then wet and then you're wet. Yep. Right. The DWR in this particular scenario, the water shedding component, it's, it's, it's defense line one, but remember you're in wool. So you're in kind of warm, 
whole nother mechanism of moisture regulation. And so, you know, the, the, the common nylon soft shell, when it fails, this will go the distance, right? And so we find for most people, the shell comes out of the bag, not very much, even, even when folks are, you know, quite honestly, you know, doing big high alpine stuff. And in case I forget to mention it, we are shooting a video of this uh, to our podcast listeners. So if you want to see some of these pieces, head over to our YouTube channel and you can see the pieces that we are currently talking about. So where do we go next? So if that was the birth of the company, kind of winter backcountry travel, you know, comfort of a fleece protection and better than a soft shell. You know, one of the things that happened to us as a company, and I think it's one of the cool things about being located where we are in Southwest Colorado, you know, we didn't choose to put the company near a port city where it was easy to monitor what was coming in on a container. We, we chose to put the company where, where the people using the products truly are, right? And it's why, you know, this drive today took three hours as opposed to having to get on an airplane. And one of the things you get when you're in those communities and what you realize is that, you know, the same folks who hang up the skis when the winter ends, you know, are guiding the rivers when they flow, right? And, and when the rivers slow down, they're fishing guides. And then when hunting season rolls down, they're hunting guides, right? And so we kept getting requests from, quite honestly, our um, guys that were guiding um, the Grand to essentially come up with a, with a summer weight piece, right? This is the River Run hoodie. We had to go back into textile development to do it. This is what I mentioned earlier. It was the idea that if you drive merino wool so fine, you lose all of its durability. You know, could we, quote unquote, kind of structurally reinforce wool with another fiber? So that's the rebar in the concrete analogy that we talked about earlier. And then float a wicking fiber to the inside. And what that allowed us to do is, um, is drive the weight of the garment down, drive the weight of the fabric down. You know, we we're probably 30% lighter than the lightest merino wool products out there because we are reinforced. And then what actually touches your skin, if you look at the inside of these products, um, you'll notice it's a different color on the inside. That's because that's that next to skin high performance wicking fiber. So that's what's drawing that moisture off the skin. It's almost acting like kind of like a sports shirt when you need it to wick. Yet when the sun ducks away behind the clouds, the wind whips up, you know, you still have that buffer that the merino wool provides. And this became not only a favorite for guys that were guiding the Grand, you know, we've seen this thing show up um, in tropical climates. We've seen, you know, we've got a guy who leaves to go to Florida every year to guide tarpon. You know, it's just kind of started to find its way all around the world. And, and ironically, it's become, you know, probably our best-selling piece as a company. Even though we started as a winter backcountry brand, you follow the water and, and suddenly, you know, um, you know, there's more of these sold than probably any other thing that we have in the collection. And it's won all sorts of crazy awards. It truly is a, a, a versatile piece. It's the one I, obviously, I put it in the car and wore it here today. I've um, got it on, You've too. got yours on. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, just, it's just the piece you want to wake up and put on every day. It's got a couple cool things, integrated thumb loops, you know, when you're, when you're rowing, you know, and you've got kind of this motion going on. You know, that way this keeps it down. It delivers, you know, anywhere between 30 and 50 SPF. You know, it's a color-dependent thing. Um, so you're getting sun protection during the whole thing. And then, uh, and then the most recent version we did, we put in this little, this little kind of tuck button, which cinches the hood from a more high volume, you know, hood that's going to kind of protect you from all the sun to, hey, the wind's whipping, you're on a boat, you know, you're getting, you know, the worst of it, you know, tuck away, if you will, which, which has also made it great for runners as well and trail runners. So it has, it has truly become the piece that's kind of transcended activities. We've even got, I mean, you know how many bluebird days we get here. I mean, you asked what I ski tour in. A lot of days I ski tour in this, you know, <laughs> just because it's got that, um, it's got, it's got that lightweight, you can sweat like heck in it. And, uh, and it just doesn't hold that moisture and get soppy wet. Um, and then we also offer the same fabric in a, in a short sleeve version and a non hooded version. So you can get the short sleeve tech tee, the long teeth tech tee and the, and the river run hoodie. And it is interesting. Like you were talking about runners are using this again, just thinking back to like a hundred percent merino pieces like i personally never run in a hundred percent merino but i would run in this right and so talk a little bit about like why 
answer, tell me why I wouldn't, you know, do that or, or like, cause it, it's, it's a very different feel. It's a very different hand feel. It clearly results in some different performance elements. So can you say a little more about that? Yeah. So if, if this was, so to go hundred percent Merino, um, the, the issue that you have is you you have a problem driving weight down. So, you know, without going to some exotic 11 and a half micron wool that you can only get in one little farm in the world, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to drive the weight of the product that we can drive without that extra yarn or that extra fiber in there kind of keeping the whole thing structurally intact, right? So the reason you don't want to run in Merino is because if they made it light enough that you'd want to run in pure Merino, you get to run in it about three times if you had a pack on and, and it would be shredded, right? And so by, again, engineering that composite, by, by putting in those structural fibers, you know, it allows us to, um, to kind of go lighter and lighter. The, the second thing is even if you did go source some super exotic merino, in order to get the knit structures to work, you have to pack that yarn so tight, you lose all the air permeability, you lose the, the breeziness of the fabric that you get out of the river run. And so it really is that kind of magical combination of being able to drive the weight down, create these under-constructed knits, and then put that wicking fiber next to your skin so it's drawing that moisture more actively that takes it from, you know, a lightweight wool shirt to merino you can run in. So this lets us go lighter and more durable. Those would be the two primary things. Yeah, and more air permeable. And more air yeah. permeable. Yeah. Without losing everything you love about merino wool, again, I could try and take a, a, a merino wool yarn and do kind of the old way of blending, which is try and load it with a bunch of other stuff to make it stronger. But then you're down to like 20% merino and you've lost all the benefit, right? We can keep these merino contents high because we're only putting it where we want it, not where we don't. What's next? Um, next, actually a reasonably new project for us, um, but I think it's a good follow-on story to the River Run, um, socks. So there's a lot of sock companies out there, right? There's a lot of merino wool sock companies out there, and I cannot tell you how many calls we had gotten, please make socks. And every single time we got a call, that's not our game. We don't do socks, you know, we're not... We're not going to make a grid wall, grid wall full of socks at every state flag on it. We're just not going to do it, right? <laughs> Fast forward, um, <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we ran into some some wild folks. Um, you know, we were at an event. Uh, it was in Denver, and we ran into some folks um, out of New Zealand who, you know, third generation family company, very culturally similar to ours. Dad was there, daughter was there, son was there. They're all at this event, and we're all drinking beers together. And, uh, and we, you know, we challenged these guys. We said, Hey, I bet you can't make our base layer into a sock. So can you take that basic premise of taking Merino wool, precision blending it, floating wicking fibers to the inside, leaving Merino wool fibers on the outside and basically make a base layer for your foot. That, that was the, you know, three beers in challenge, so to speak. Well, you know, they took it on, right? We ended up, you know, many, many, many Skype calls later, a couple of visits later. And, uh, and we ended up with this project to create what we have come to just believe is, is really the, the ultimate kind of end all be all for Merino wool socks. And, and the idea again was to, if you look at the inside of our socks, you know, you see the, the color difference. That's because that's that wicking sport fiber next to your skin, much like the river run hoodie on the outside is the Merino wool. So you're in an endurance race. You have to get across a stream, you get wet, you don't get all the blistery stuff that goes on um, with merino wool next to your skin. You're getting that slick sport fiber next to your skin. It's moving moisture, yet when you need the thermals, you have the thermals there as well. And so um, it's been a super cool project for us. We started with a ski sock, actually, which we still have. Um, we did like a mid-calf light hike. Uh, we've done this trail sock, which I've got with me here, which is kind of more your mountain biking trail running sock. And then we did a, a super low profile run sock. Are we going to be the company that has a hundred socks on the wall? No, but like everything else we do, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's really a performance driven first discussion. And, and we only did it if there was a reason for it to be. So I've actually run in the the low profile kind of no-show sock. I've run and now mountain biked in it actually. 
really interesting. But talk to me a little bit about the difference between that sock and this is a little thicker. Yeah, it's a little thicker and it's a little higher profile, right? And so, you know, the trick with the run socks, right, is that you got to have essentially this kind of full padding on the bottom deal, right? And so on that bottom surface we of the run sock, we put full padding, we put the merino wool on the top. With this sock, which is more transitional into trail and mountain biking, um, it allowed us to essentially um, get the padding strategically heel and toe, which allowed us to wrap more of the merino wool, get the merino wool covering more of the foot, if you will, on the outside. And so, you know, from a crossover perspective, you know, it's it's just a little more um, versatile, right? Moving from trail to, to road versus the pure run sock, which you've tried. Where are we going? So the last piece we brought today to share, um, Again, we talked a little bit earlier about core construction technology. Um, this is the convex vest. This is really the, the workhorse that was born out of this new technology platform. Um, you know, what you, the first thing you notice when you see this vest is that, you know, if I were to tell you there was a membrane in it, you would probably never believe me, right? It's, a, it's soft, it, um, it, it has the comfort of a sweater. Yet this thing's blocking 98% of the wind, 98% of the water, right? And so it's got integrated weather protective membrane. Um, it really pairs well with other stuff in our collection. So a lot of times I'll take the core constructed convex vest, I'll put it over the river run, and you've kind of got this, you know, go anywhere combo, if you will. Um, again, what makes it so powerful is that, you know, I think in terms of a, a breathability hit, so we, we test these structures with and without membranes. We can actually not insert the membrane, but make the same structure. And so we take maybe a 10% hit in breathability, but we get 98% weather protection increase, right? So you get this huge disproportionate weather protection, wind, water, um, but from a breathability perspective, the thing feels like you're putting on a fleece. It's so funny. I found myself thinking about whiskey and then I found myself thinking about this isn't the first podcast where I found myself thinking about whiskey, <laughs> but you've been talking about blending so much, right? And it really is interesting to just in the same way that like a whiskey distiller will will work with these blends. What kind of performance quality feel flavor do we want to give here you're like oh we can give up a 10 percent breathability but way bump up the weather protectiveness and it's like these are the decisions you guys just i guess get to sit around and it sounds like you have quite a bit of ability to to tinker and dial up or dial down some of these different performance aspects is that correct yeah, we do. There's a um, there's an interesting story back. Our base layers, which I didn't bring with me today, but um, we'll be relaunching for this fall. Um, you know, very very similar story, right? So we um, we built our first base layer technology. Um, it was merino wool on the outside. It was um, high performance wicking fiber on the inside, and uh, and then we did this knit structure to kind of suck everything down and make it more elastic. More I don't want to use the word compression, but kind of tighter fit to the body. Um, you know, we took it out the back door and put it on all the folks up at our local ski area and found out that the elbows were bagging out, you know, after three or four days, right? So what did we do? Well, we went back and we engineered the textile. We dropped 2% Lycra in ultimately, which gave it the recovery, but you don't want to put too much Lycra in because if you do, it just stops water, right? And so, you know, we were able to fine tune that much like your master distiller to kind of get to that level. And, and I don't think you can do that if you're working on 2024, making stuff in a far off place, not connected, right? And so, you know, we, um, you know, in many ways, I think are really, really similar to anybody who's in that industry of kind of fine tuning things, whether you're roasting coffee beans or, or making whiskey. And, and ultimately, if we can take all that together and then make new processes like, hey, let's barrel age that in a cask, you know, or the, you know, a wine cask. And what does that do? You know, that's that new kind of method to make or new processes that we're always kind of seeking as well. So it's, it's fine-tuning blends and then bringing new ways to do things, you know, all at the same time. A topic that's come up a lot, uh, and I'm happy that it is coming up a lot, is, you know, talk about kind of responsible production and trying to build stuff, make stuff in a less harmful way or figuring out how we can reduce impacts and the rest. Can you say a little bit about 
you know, how Vormi has been thinking about this and, you know, maybe some of the things you've done or if you're more excited about some of the things you have coming forward or where are you guys on the kind of responsible production front? Yeah, no, um, you know, I'm glad you brought it up. It's, it's certainly, I would say, if not one of the top, maybe even the number one topic these days when folks sit down to think about making outdoor gear. And so much so that, you know, Wait, do you think at, at Vormi or you think across the industry? Across the industry. Yeah. I think people have, and not just the outdoor apparel industry. Yeah. I mean, I think in our lives, we've just gotten so conscious about not only, you know, what we have, but kind of how it got to us. Um, you know, and I think there have been so many good things that have happened, even since the foundation of our company in terms of, you know, folks developing standards and folks trying to develop enforcement to those standards. And I think, I think overall that just raises the bar for everyone, you know, and, and certainly as we seek out our partners and our vendors, we're looking for all of those things. We're looking for blue sign. We're looking for all the things that, you know, are the right thing to do. But at the heart of it, there's kind of what's the right thing to do, right? And it's and in a way, you know, laws and enforcement, you know, exist, but 99% of us wake up and, and do the right thing every single day. And so that's that's the philosophy that drives us at Vormi. It's do all the foundational things that we need to do, but but really in the end of the day, you know, how do you think about sustainability in, in the context uh, more holistically and doing the right thing? And and for us, it really comes down to a few different things. It's It's make less. It's make it last longer, not so long that it's here centuries after we die, <laughs> and, and make it matter, right? And so I think we talked a little bit earlier, if we haven't yet, about our um, about kind of our approach to manufacturing. You know, we don't do what, you know, typically the industry is set up to do, which is overproduce and then discount. You know, our, our model's not set up that way. We're producing to demand. Um, we're doing it in... Um, in very deliberate and scaled production. And so, you know, if we sell out of river run hoodies, we make more river run hoodies, right? If we sell out of socks, we make more socks. Um, you won't see our products discounted because we don't make too many of them, right? And so, you know, it's our belief that's the first thing you can do in the world of sustainability is, is don't make it <laughs> if you don't have to. Um, and then the, you know, the second thing is, is make it last, right? And so, you know, I think, um, you know, the idea that kind of durability is the new sustainability is um, is something that we have been passionate about since the beginning. You know, if you if you have to make five to last the same length of time to make one, you know, from a from a total impact perspective, I'll take the one every day and all day long. And it doesn't necessarily matter if 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 the five things came from a a plastic bottle that was recycled or not, it's still five things that ended up in the landfill, right? And so from our perspective, um, durability of the product is is key and and and, and so important. Um, so it is one of the kind of foundational tenets. That said, I made the comment of make it last, but make it not last for centuries. Again, that's why you asked about merino wool and benefits. You know, merino wool, 80 days in a landfill. Polyester, 80 years in a landfill. And so um, so the more merino wool content we can put in, the longer you make it last, the smaller the impact you have left over in the landfill, right? Now, similarly, if I did not put a little bit of, of other fiber in there to reinforce it or make it stronger or make it last longer, now I've just got five merino garments in a landfill and you have all the dye processes and all the other production things that it took to get it there. So so those are all very important to us. And then kind of the other part of responsibility that I, and the last part to kind of make it matter, um, you know, I feel like in many ways the sustainability conversation always seeks to focus on on the environmental impact, biodegradability, et cetera, et cetera, which, which are great things. But I feel what's lost in that is kind of the responsible part of your community and responsible part of society. And so, you know, one of the really, one of the things we're really passionate about is, is we did set up our, our company in a small community. We do, you know, provide jobs in that community. Um, as we grew into Bozeman in our second retail location, we opened up a sew shop in Bozeman. We've got three jobs posted in Bozeman right now, right? And so this idea that, that when you go into these smaller communities, you know, we're not set up near Port City, we're set up in a small community. I mean, you really can have an impact that you can put your hands on, right? It's, it's not as if you are, you know, stroking a check to something that you know nothing about. It's the people probably that you know, right? And, and for us, it's a really, really powerful thing from a responsibility standpoint. 
I'm glad you kind of said that the responsibility should be understood in the broadest possible sense. Impacts, impact and impacts, I think should be understood in the broadest possible senses. And, you know, increasingly, like we had this company, Wonder Alpine, you know, it's based in Salt Lake City. They were just sitting here and, you know, I was asking them the same question. And I kind of want to just now, anytime I'm talking with someone from a company, ask them. And I think we're in an interesting time where there is a heightened kind of peer pressure. I think I'll use that term in terms of what are you doing to diminish that environmental impact? And we are asking companies that we want to know more on that front. But I think the reason I like asking the question is because we do hear more. It's There isn't just one or two or three lanes. There's like, I don't know, 130. Right. And we're not all going to be getting A pluses in, in every conceivable um, sense of response you know, doing things responsibly or, you know, with the, the most reduced impact possible. And so I do think these are important things to ask. And hopefully we get real genuine answers back because it can also maybe motivate companies to be like, oh, we're not actually doing anything on that front. Maybe that's something we could think about and integrate. And that strikes me as the right kind of pressure to be putting on our whole industry in the broadest sense. The thing though, I will say, there also means that we probably need a culture of like, I don't know, generosity or charitability and like not so much a culture of like, hey, screw you. Why isn't Vormi doing A, B or C? It's like, well, dude, you're not doing, I both want a more charitable culture and I want all of us to be trying to move forward in real ways. Yeah, and I think the word real ways is, is kind of the, the context there, right? Because it's easy to to make a, a brochure, yeah. a piece of marketing collateral that, you know, that ticks whatever box is important that day. It's, it's, it's easy to do that. It's easy to go set up, you know, whatever, whatever supply chain you need to meet to meet a certain criteria. What I think is more important is that folks are just real about it. You know, it's, it's, it's back to this idea that, you know, we all wake up every day as, as corporate leaders or as, as, as leaders in companies, we, we should seek to wake up and do the right thing, right? I mean, that's, that's what's going to drive, you know, real meaningful progress. And in the wake of that, we'll figure out how to systematize those things and make the right, you know, policies, the right certifications, all that kind of stuff. But if we're not waking up every day trying to do it better, then as a whole, we won't ever really get any better. So I appreciate that. So crystal ball time. We're thinking about Vormi 10 years from now. What do you foresee? (laughs) What would you like this company to look like? What can you share with us? Yeah. So, um, no, it's, it's, it's an awesome question. Um, it's something we, from a materials perspective are obviously always challenging ourselves with, you know, I think, if, if we put that 10-year horizon out there, in a way, I'm back to um, this convergence of textiles and technology. We're at the point now where, where tech companies are making our cars. Our dishwashers are connected to the internet. Everything has, if you will, been transformed by the integration of technology, whether that's advanced manufacturing techniques, whether that's integrated e-tech. I think our vision is that because this company was founded at that convergence of textiles and technology and wanting to see, you know, really, if you will, the, the principles of one industry translate to another, you know, I think our goal is to be at the forefront of that change. I mean, that's, that's what we seek to do. You know, there's some really cool things as you start to think about, as you think about textiles getting smarter. Let's just talk about integrated electronics for a second. One of the, and, and this is the same build conversation we had, one of the things that's, that, that we don't talk a lot about is what happens to electronic waste, right? How many iPhones do you have in your drawer that you don't throw away because you don't know what to do with yet are still just piling up in your drawer? As technology and, and as our clothes continue to, as, as things continue to offer services, I think our clothes will too. We want to be at the forefront of that technology. Um, we are doing things to be at the forefront of that technology in the background it's going to create a potentially bigger problem, <laughs> right? And that's, that's what do we do with 
the impact, the overall you know, ecological impact, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's where we think this bit around natural fibers and understanding sustainability and production and all the other things that kind of we foundationally set up to do all come into play, right? And so, you know, I think if you were to ask us crystal ball, what does things look like 10 years from now? I mean, I think the expectations you have in your clothing will be completely different. I think it'll offer you levels of services and connectivity that you've never experienced or expected out of your textiles. And I think leading the charge with the sustainably based approach and thinking about it from the perspective of a company rooted in the, in the culture that we're rooted in versus necessarily kind of where, where a lot of that innovation is going to be driven from. I mean, I think it's all going to kind of come together and we're really passionately focused on, on being ready when it comes and kind of being that lead company. And it's, it's really bizarre or strange to maybe hear somebody you know, who wakes up and makes high E hoodies today, talk about that. But it's what we've set the company up to do. It's why we developed a textile technology company that went on to build apparel, as opposed to developing an apparel company that went on to source fabrics. <laughs> a textile technology company. Mm. That's a pretty good answer. I'm, I'm giving you a 10 out of 10 for that. I've answer. got 10 years to figure it out. Yeah, apparently. yeah. Now you now get to work. Yeah. That saying it was the easy part. Anything else we should touch on before I uh, let you go? No, nah, I mean, unless you have anything else, I think it was great. I um I appreciate the ability to come in here and do this. You know, we uh we oftentimes spend a lot of our time, you know, thinking about what's next, it's nice to, it's nice to be able to get it out and, and share what we think is next for sure. <laughs> well, thanks for coming by. This was fun and, and good to catch up. And I've really mostly of all the stuff, just for me personally, that question of like, you pick some products that you personally want to talk about. I was very curious to see what you would come back with. And uh, so, you know, mission accomplished. <laughs> Great, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Well, thanks. And look forward to seeing how you make the next decade happen because it's it's all on tape now. We got you, <laughs> we got you on tape. Perfect. So, all right, Tim. All right. Thanks Take so care. much. Okay, now before we wrap up this episode of Gear 30 and in keeping with our new tradition, I want to say that this week what I'm celebrating is Damian Lillard of the Portland Trailblazers and any basketball fans out there know exactly what I'm talking about. But basically, Damian Lillard is playing basketball right now at the highest possible level. It is completely unreal and so that is why I am raising this glass of Whistle Pig Farm Stock Rye to the guy who is operating at a wildly high level. Good job, Dame. Okay, and with that, remember that you can catch the video of this conversation and take a look at the products that we talk about in the conversation over on our Blister YouTube channel that will be up on Saturday, August 15th. And you can also head over to vormi.com to check out all of the Vormi products there. Finally, I want to say thanks to Tim Smith for coming to CB and sitting down with me in Blister HQ. Of course, I want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And also, of course, I want to say thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these Gear 30 episodes or any of our other podcasts, we would very much appreciate it if you would take a couple of seconds out of your day to leave us a nice little rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Okay, everybody, thanks. And from all of us here in the Gunnison Valley, please be safe out there. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again next week.